Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. As always, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. 
Today, folks, we're going to be getting back right on track with this podcast as we're not talking about a book and we're not talking about anything to do with Peter Jackson's recent three-part docu-series. No, we're going to be going all the way back to one of our original side series, one of my favourite side series, actually, that we've been doing here on the show, which is our Hot Hits and Cold Cuts series, slash our Cold Cuts and Hot Hits series, depending on which version you prefer to say. Now, as you know, this has been an ongoing look into all of the songs that we don't get to talk about specifically during our regular album review episodes. This includes non-album singles, B-sides, and of course, Cold Cuts, The Bootlegs, the tracks that have never seen the light of day. With this, we could get demos, abandoned studio recordings, and even finalised tracks complete with overdubs and orchestrations that just, for some reason, were never released. Of course, very few of these songs would ever appear in books like Paul McCartney, The Lyrics, or Paul McCartney, The Recording Sessions, but they are always worth looking into to help complete the full Paul McCartney songwriting narrative. Last time we did one of these, we took a look at the year 1976 into 77, around the time of Wings at the Speed of Sound, and so today, logically, we'll be leaping forward a year to take a look at the Water Wings into London Town Sessions from 77, and a bit into 78. As always, this isn't anything massively complex. I'm sure you can all keep up with such a concept, and so with that in mind, let let us not waste any more time. Well, okay, we do have to waste a little bit more time, because first we must deal with the matter of the plugs and updates as we crack on with the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well... In George Harrison news, The Quiet Beetle has finally got around to releasing a video for his hit single, My Sweet Lord, a full 51 years after its release. The whole thing is a really star-studded affair, actually, with the likes of Fred Armisen, Mark Hamill, John Hamm, Reggie Watts, Taika Waititi, Patton Oswalt, Weird Al Yankovic, and Natasha Leggera all making cameos, as well as appearances from Beatle folk, including... Danny and Olivia Harrison, Ringo Starr, along with Joe Walsh, as well as Jeff Lynne. Honestly, folks, I was a bit sceptical when I saw it announced, but I watched it, and you know what? For what it was, it really was a rather charming video, and it's already racked up nearly 2 million views worldwide. It's very well shot. The concept is very fun. It's all very charming, and clearly everyone involved is a massive George Harrison fan. And, you know, it's a wonderful tribute to him as an artist. I certainly recommend you go check it out. Back to Paul news, though. If you remember, his Yamaha BB-1200, used during the Back to the Egg era of the band, was put up for auction recently, and that auction has now come to pass, and it has sold, in turn breaking the world record for the most expensive bass guitar ever. Turns out, it has sold for a whopping $496,100, or £374,905, which has actually beaten the previous record of $384,000, or £290,190, set by the Rolling Stones' Bill Wyman for the sale of his 1969 Fender Mustang bass back in 2020. 
Weldon Paul, I guess 2021 just keeps being your year, doesn't it? I mean, it's not even a Hofner base. Let's try and do it again next year with a Beatles Hofner. Who knows how much you'll rake in for that one. Anyway, now that the news is done, let's get on with the plugs. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love to hear your Paul-based news and opinions, no matter what they may be. We do have a quick email, of course, from our regular correspondent, Lou DeLonardo, who says, Sam, just finish your reviews of the Get Back documentary. Great job. Question, did you notice that Ringo was almost never given any instruction or told how or what to play? I know he was an awesome drummer for keeping time, but wow, if he added all the drum parts on his own, that is simply amazing stuff. What do you think? Hope you're staying safe with all this COVID stuff happening. Have a great Christmas. Lou, thank you for the email there, Lou. I haven't had one in a while, so it's nice for you to break that chain, as it were. But, of course, we do have to consider the fact that, obviously, Peter Jackson chose what to include in that movie, and maybe there were harsher moments during these sessions where the band were telling Ringo exactly what to play. But, as far as I can tell, and based on interviews I've seen during the Beatles' tenure and during the solo years... I think they just really trusted Richie. You know, they really just trusted him to do what he did best. And, you know, there is one bit where you do see John suggest to Ringo that maybe he should be playing it a slightly different way. But it's only a suggestion. It's not an order. And, I mean, even Ringo defends himself and says that that is what he has been playing the whole time anyway. So... I don't particularly worry about Ringo during these periods. He's, he's a big boy. He's the oldest of the group. He knows how to, A, take criticism, and B, put his money where his mouth is and deliver the goods. I don't think there is a bad Ringo track on any Beatles song. So it's not like there's much room for the other three to kind of say, I told you so. Anyway, thank you for the email there, Lou. Hope you're having a great Christmas as well. Peace and love, peace and love. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or nothing content in the written word, go and check out our blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You can check out all sorts of articles there. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place where you can check out new episodes of our sister series, Macca in Your Attic, the latest episode of which actually features me as the guest, me showing off some of my Paul McCartney swag, and I'm graciously joined by my arch-rival, Tom Hunyadi, who takes on the host duties. Go and check that one out. I'm very proud of that episode, folks. Of course, if you want to help out the show right away, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then please, if you could leave us a review or give us a thumbs up or a like or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to the show on it is much appreciated as many stars as possible would also be appreciated maybe even throw in a nice comment as well it always helps out the show boosts us up in the algorithms all of those online calculations gives us the exposure if you could much appreciated though if you want to help out the show right away if you've been enjoying what i do here obviously i work a full-time job while i'm doing this if you want to help the show grow if you want to help expand the show in terms of content you want to help provide physical product for me to review 
or maybe you, you just feel like throwing a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family. Yes, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as moi, though it is not just a charity. You get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to all episodes of Macca in your attic and instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. Yes, if there's an episode or a episode of Macket in Your Attic that I've done and recorded on Zoom, it goes straight on the Patreon page. You get access to it straight away, sometimes weeks, sometimes months in advance of its official publishing. You also get access to lost episodes of the show, bonus episodes of the show that will never release, as well as all of the scripts that I use for Paul or Nothing. You know, you get to see how faithful I am to them. But yeah, I could up do this show without the support of my wonderful Patreon family. It always touches me, you know, that people would think to give any money to this show is always quite mind-boggling, but, you know, they are my family and I cannot do any episode without giving my thanks to them. People including Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Anyway, folks, now that all of the housekeeping is out of the way, it is time to procure the obscure as we go into Hot Hits and Cold Cuts slash Cold Cuts and Hot Hits. Now, something I really should have pointed out by this part of this series, folks, is that despite the fact that these episodes have gotten more and more in-depth and accurate and far-reaching as the podcast has gone on, there are still huge gaps in the facts. As hard as it is to believe, there are actually hundreds of unreleased Paul McCartney songs that we don't even have past the bootleg stage. This means they were either successfully guarded by the MPL elves, they were simply lost and only written down, or that the recordings remain a part of McCartney's own private collection. Shockingly, despite all the access we have to a wide variety of illegal bootlegs and counterfeits, there is still a veritable shite ton of songs that we only know by name and name alone. For the period we are covering today, for example, we have the following mystery tunes. We have Moog Melody, Mambo Me Baby, One Woman, El Toro Passing, Down San Francisco Way, Running Around the Room, Two Little Fairies, Twelve of the Clock, Firebird Drama, Back in Time, Lonesome Tears, a song simply called Instrumental Piece, Scottish Air, That Strange Old Fashioned, Agoo Mr. D.D., Jailbreak, I doubt it's the Thin Lizzy version, Standing Very Still, Sleepy Time Rag, I Love You Madly, Mouthpiece and or Sweaty Mouthpiece, and finally, Feeling. Of course, if any of you have access to any of these songs, please hit me up via the email at gmail.com. Sorts out, yeah? We also have many other edits of the songs that would appear on the final album during these sessions also, but... Upon reflection, I think I'm probably going to start another, 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 another side series where I'm going to look at alternate takes and nixes. So, more on all of that at a later date. 
So, starting off, we're going to talk about a song whereby your opinion on it really does say a lot about you as a Paul McCartney fan, what kind of fan you are, and where you come from, actually. Is it a massive Titanic track or a kitsch curiosity? Well, let's decide right now, as it is time for us to discuss Mull of Kintyre. Folks, it's time to mull over the mull, and right off the bat, I'm going to declare myself as ardently pro Mull of Kintyre. This song is easily one of the best McCartney ballads, and it's always had the power to resonate with me, even after innumerable re listens. I know many of you out there will think that it's overplayed in the way that I consider Jet or Band on the Run to be overplayed, but that just isn't the case. Somehow, this is still underrated. First of all, you have that opening guitar picking and strumming that is just so arresting. It's quintessential Paul. You know, it's catchy, it's melodic, it's unshowy. Love it. Then you have the vocals. Fuck me, is Paul ever at his reserved best here? We don't get shouty or aggressive Paul here or anything, but it isn't soft and meek either. It's just Paul relaxed and casual, and you can tell he's truly recalling the majesty of the Scottish Highlands when he's singing. It really is magical. Then you have the lyrics and the vocal melody, which combined is this effortless heart and soul of the song. I mean, how can you not get swept up in the awe-inspiring imagery on display and the catchy-ass way it is presented? For me, this is a top 20 Paul McCartney classic that fits into a specific type of tune, whereby anyone else doing that simple melody and chorus over and over again would be tiring, but Paul manages to keep it engaging and emotional throughout. Like, my dream is to be in a room full of McCartney fans, likely all inebriated, and just to sing along to this. As I know, it would be an overwhelming group sing-song experience. I must be honest and upfront here though, yes, I am aware that I probably like this song a lot more than others purely for the fact that I'm English. There is indisputably a distinct nostalgic Britishness in the makeup of this song, and I would be lying through my front teeth if it didn't fill me with some semblance of national pride. And that really is saying something, because National Pride, any pilot at all really, is something that I do not usually go for at all. But by Jove, if this track doesn't make a tear roll down my face and make me feel 
a little love for this little island called Blighty that I happen to live on. You know, when you get that last hurrah of the chorus, you get such a rush and you're just caught up in, in the moment of it it's all. There's just something so innately British about it. And I love it. Also, I cannot go any further without giving a huge shout-out to the Campbelltown Pipe Band as their bagpipe work in this song not only dispenses with the myth that bagpipes are this horrible instrument that no one can make sound good because they do here, but they just steal the show, don't they? You know, this is a Paul McCartney song that suddenly becomes a Campbelltown Pipe Band song. You know, they, they come out of nowhere and they just deliver this rush, this energy that the song really needed at that point to, and I hate this quote, take it to the next level. And I know I'm not the only one here, as this song here in the UK was a mahoosive number one hit. Not only that, though, it was a Christmas number one hit, with a total of nine weeks spent at the top of the charts, resulting in it becoming the first single here in Old Blighty to sell over two million copies. This meant it overtook She Loves You as the top-selling single of all time here, and it wouldn't be beaten until Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid in 1984. Now, folks, we really can't skip over the success here, because it had been seven years since Paul had gone out on his own, and for that entire time, he was constantly compared to the success of the Beatles. And whilst he never had an album that was as successful, bar maybe Band on the Run, but now, after coming back from a world tour that dwarfed any individual Beatles tour, he finally has a song that actually, officially, on paper, has beaten his Beatle work. In many ways, you could argue that from this point onwards, Paul stopped trying to be so obviously try-hard and was able to start writing much more for himself. He no longer has to try and top the Beatles because he's already done it. Additionally, I should point out that this song was successful in other territories that never get really written about in Beatle books, such as going to number one in Australia, Austria, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, and Switzerland. It also got to the number two spot in Norway and made it to number five in Spain. Well done. Secondly, additionally, I want to point out that I had almost entirely forgotten that this was Wings' only number one single here in the UK. Like, I would have thought that they would have at least had one or two more, but no, the majority of their big hits were in the US and other territories, which is as interesting as it is a bummer for me, but it also highlights just how important this song is as a single for them as a force here in the UK. The flip side of this, though, is that we have to contend with the fact that one particular part of the world did not accept this song with open arms. It did not have the same success. And of course, I'm referring to Across the Pond. In the United States of America, Bull of Kintyre made it to the paltry position of 45 in the Billboard charts and only did slightly better in Canada by making it to number 44. This is an incredible drop-off, and it highlights the differing tastes of the two nations. I mean, why would the land of 
exceptionalism enjoy a song that extols the virtues of the UK and Scotland of all places. And I'm not saying that America can't enjoy stuff that isn't about America, even though half of the number one films over there are always have America in the title. But, you know, it certainly helps if, you know, it's closer to home. And I'm not surprised that Mull of Kintyre didn't get to number one, but 45 and 44 are particularly low. Especially since that there is a rather large expat community over in the States, and I would have thought that all of those former empire folk would have lapped this thing right up. Though, maybe there just aren't the numbers concentrated in certain key areas to push this to number one. Maybe on smaller, more regional charts? I don't know. But it seems that the US at that time was far more concerned with spending their money on You Don't Bring Me Flowers by Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond, as well as Le Freak by Chic. Again, I also want to point out that this track also fared tremendously poorly in Japan, where it didn't even make the top 40 with a paltry position of number 69. Ooh, I misses. Now, something that has always been rather famous about this song is that it's co-written by Denny Lane. That's official. It's on the paperwork. The story goes that one afternoon, Paul and Denny, whilst up in Scotland, were necking a bottle of whiskey and enjoying the scenic, picturesque, natural views and turned it into a song. Now, whilst that may be partially true, is it the whole truth? No. Basically, something I didn't know until I listened to Paul McCartney, the 1974 home recording demos, a.k.a. the piano tape, was, well, one of the things I didn't know is that this song was largely already composed before the Venus and Mars sessions. Yes, folks, Mullough Kintyre is another Paul McCartney song that he wrote and then came back to a couple of years later. And as you will now hear, it is clear that Denny may have helped him with a verse or two at most. Let's play the clip.
folks, you know me. I'm an unabashed Danny Lane fanboy. And to this day, I still think his contributions to Wings are woefully underappreciated. However, this does not mean I'm going to be blind to the fact that this song was clearly almost fully formed by the time he got to it. The melody, the structure, the rhyming scheme, the chorus, it's all there. And he simply added a few finishing touches. And yes, that did mean that Denny would have a shared writing credit on the band's biggest hit here in the UK and would have fetched him a pretty penny. And considering that Wings Over America had just ended also with a large paycheck, it must have been one of his most financially secure moments of his life, of his career ever. Sadly though, we know that, that this wasn't to last, as Denny's spending and tax-based debts quickly outpaced his earnings, especially when Wings weren't touring after Wings Over America, and he was forced to take a loan from Paul. This story goes that Paul's lawyers would not allow McCartney to give Denny the loan without some sort of collateral. And so he was forced to put up his own share of Mullen Kintyre. Denny had to risk his credit, his earnings on their biggest song. And when Denny didn't pay Paul back on time, his rights to the song were rescinded and he became songwriter by name only and sadly has missed out on 40 odd years of royalties ever since. I don't mean to end this review on an, a real negative there. I just realised how sad and depressing that is. But yeah, um, I guess that kind of makes sense because, you know, Mull of Kintyre, it really is a Marmite song. Some of you are going to love it. Some of you are going to hate it. But also, I fucking love Marmite. So you better fucking love it too because well, both Marmite and Mull of Kintyre because they are the shit. And... I know a lot of these podcasts are about personal opinion and not forcing your views on others, but you know what? This is my show, folks. If you don't like this song, you have five minutes to vacate the premises, delete this podcast from your feed and go listen to Two Legs, because you aren't wanted here, you traitorous cur. In all seriousness, though, if you are one of these folks across the pond who can put into words why Mull of Kintyre didn't exactly resonate with the folk from Britain's old colony, I would love to hear your thoughts. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to read it out. Okay, everyone, it's time to press on to flip the script and flip the disc of Mull of Kintyre, both physically and in terms of the fandom, as its B-side track is equally revealing about Paul McCartney fans. Let's get ready for a song that probably wouldn't fly in the modern era with girls school three cheers for the girls hip 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 hip
So, whilst this series is populated with many McCartney compositions that I've never really listened to before, it's rare, admittedly, at this point, but for me to come across a song from the official canon that I've barely listened to before really is uh, a bit of a unicorn moment for me. Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing, I know, but before the research for this podcast, I may have listened to this song maybe once, twice before, max. And that's because I never really liked it right away. Sorry, folks, those were the breaks. Um, Though I have listened to it constantly in preparation for today, and I will admit, I, I, I have to be contrite here, I have started to fall for it a little. I guess the way I feel about this song is the way I used to feel about Junior's Farm. Although, there hasn't been the exact same kind of, oh, how wrong was I, reaction. Today, folks, I'm going to be filing this song under guilty pleasure. I remember my friend Tom calling Jet subpar pub rock. And whenever I don't get that iconic riff and the song's kind of just chugging along that's kind of how I view the song I know I'm going to be pissing off some people with that sentiment but there we go there have been many times when I've said a bad song is good and a good song is bad and this might just be another one of those situations for you and for everything negative that I can say about this song again I have been listening to it near enough on repeat I have had it to be incredibly catchy and fun even if I don't think that it's the best quality wings rocker. But let's talk about some positive folks. You know, first of all, I really do fucking dig the main riff. It is quintessential McCarthy, you know. Again, it's sparse, it's uncomplicated, it's unshowy offy. It's it's just such a McCartney riff. You know, the way it starts as well, just that it's so full of immediate energy and momentum, and it really doesn't let up from that point. The riff is also especially effective when paired with those subtle little harmonies that they sing underneath. And that guitar tone, it's just divine. Like, you really don't hear anything like that in the rest of Wing's discography, and you really do feel like the band is trying to show that they don't need Jimmy McCulloch anymore to deliver a solid, badass rock riff. That being said, I really do wish that this riff maybe had been saved and held back for a better overall song and lyric. You know, it's not the best Wings rocker ever, though there was so much little rock in this period that its mere existence immediately makes it more valuable. You know, we beggars can't be choosers, and I will literally take any badass McCartney riff that Paul gives me at this point. Also, as another little positive, I also really enjoyed that that brief intro, the um, three cheers for the girls. I don't know what it is, but it just feels very London towny, and you know it does both set up and contrast well with with that opening riff again. Though, am I the only one that thinks that it sounds like it was recorded as three cheers for the girls' school, and the word school was quickly edited out? Also, is it Linda going? Three cheers for the girls. It, it definitely sounds like it's her. Additionally, just in terms of sequencing and marketing, 
I also appreciate that this song is the polar opposite of Mull of Kintyre, and I've always been a fan of contrasting A and B sides on a 45 single, and these two couldn't be any more different if they tried. They also couldn't be further poles apart for me, seeing that one is this iconic near-perfect McCartney tune, and the other one is nearly a complete throwaway for me. And again, it's throwaway in the best possible way, but it's still throwaway, at least in the broad spectrum of McCartney's illustrious career. Anyway, what is girls' school about exactly? Well, surprise, surprise, it's about a girls' school. I've already mentioned that the lyric in this rocker is particularly weak, and I think that this comes from the fact that this song is trying way too hard to be sexy and naughty, and this won't be the first time we come across this topic in today's episode either. In the first verse, we have an 18-year-old lying on the floor, waiting for something, wink, wink. The second features a teacher showing implied sex ed films to her students. The third has a head nurse with a full-body massage parlour. And the fourth and final one has a trainer giving the girls drugs and sending them to bed. Now, this isn't high, 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 or, or even, you know, famous groupies from the same sessions where that classic McCartney material is obfuscated and uh, full of hidden double entendre. This is just straight up rather salacious material and it just feels ever so slightly off-brand. Like, I know that's the whole conceit of the song. It's like, oh, okay, it's a girls' school, a girls' boarding school here in the UK. It's meant to be prim and proper and everything's supposed to be good, clean, fun and yet... You know, underneath the surface, you pull back the layers and actually, oh, it's it's full of sexy students in short skirts and cleavage, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, fun idea, Paul, you know, it's very funny. Everyone at the time would have appreciated that kind of raunchy, carry-on, Benny Hill kind of humour. But, and you know, I'm not judging it by, like, today's modern kind of puritanical standards or anything but I just I just don't think it's that good I just think the idea's a little bit off and it could have been reworked slightly I don't know how I'm not claiming to be a songwriting genius in my own right or to even question Paul but something about it just feels off to me fortunately at least the song still has that fun little hook of what can a sister do which is a fun line both out of context and within the context of the story. Again, I kind of wish he would have saved it for a different track. But again, it plays into that idea that we discussed in Paul McCartney, the lyrics where Paul just seems to get women and write good songs about them. You know, think about it. What can a sister do? That's a really quite poignant question. Well, at least it would be if it wasn't sullied and associated with kind of naughty, foppish British sex humour. I don't know. Anyway, despite some questionable lyrics, the song is still admittedly sung incredibly well, and Paul does give one of his typically strong, throaty rock vocals. Like, you know, just because he's really not doing a lot of this in this era doesn't mean he can't do it, and it's nice for him to remind us. And, you know, that main riff, along with Paul's vocal, are dragging the song, kicking and screaming out of obscurity and <laughs> kind of tepidness I guess. Also going back to the harmonies just for a moment again the vocals are quite strong in this song especially the R's like the you know the three of them Linda, Denny, Paul their harmonies are peak wings here and it you know it really reminds me of some of their 
best moments from their early career, that, that, that kind of Red Roof Speedway band on the run 73 period. Like, it's so strong here. Now, there's an awful lot of talk about how this song was far more important in the States than its A-side, Molofkin Tire. And it's widely reported that it did receive significantly more radio play at the time. But how much impact did this really have? Well, not as much as one would hope or expect. Girls' School managed to reach number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the States and number 34 in Canada. Again, both one uh, position away from each other, rather ironically. And whilst that's a marketable improvement, it's still nothing to write home about, particularly when you consider that everyone across the pond considers this to be their favourite side of the record. It's certainly underwhelming for us at least over here in the UK with our tea and biscuits and a massive number one. Um, I'm not even sure if B-sides did chart here in the UK at that time. If anyone's got any information about that, I'd certainly like to hear that as well. Drop us an email. And yeah, I know, it's hardly a fair test because, you know, B-sides aren't going to get the same advertising push as the A-side and, you know, the way the B-side sales are logged are largely based on antiquated chart rankings, based on radio play, how accurately was that recorded, blah, blah, blah. But still, I was kind of expecting a top 20 hit here. I really was. Right, folks, girls' school. This song feels quite special to me now, as it's probably the last of the undiscovered official Wings tracks that I'm ever going to listen to on this podcast. And even though my love for this song is somewhat slash completely ironic, it's already crept up on my most listened to playlist on Spotify. So it's going to be doing something right. Um, it's always nice to have your perception of a song changed. And whilst I won't say I've done a complete 180, I've certainly changed my point of view at least 90 degrees, which is something at least. Again, this comes down to semantics. And I know there are a lot of people out there who think that if you say a song uh, is not good, then you're giving it one out of 10 or that you're saying it's trash or whatever. And I'm just saying it's highly contextual. Wings fans and McCartney fans are probably going to love this track, but the wider world, folks, uh, I really don't see people giving this one all that much credit. That's all I'm saying. Next up, and we have one of those songs that are so short, I'm actually able to play it in its entirety before we even talk. Of course, being that these sessions took place on a boat, the title of this one makes a whole a lot of sense. This is Sea Melody. Oh, thank you very much, kid. We'll, we'll let you know. All right, thank you. Hope you like it. think of a, a more generic title for a track from these sessions if I tried. But then again, it's so fleeting and small, sorry for the pun there, of an idea that 
there really isn't anything else you could call it because there really isn't anything for it to stand out as a concept except the fact that it's a melody that Paul came up with at sea. And yeah, that's all this song is, a melody. And it's something we're going to be seeing a lot throughout this episode. The 30 or so snippet that you just heard there is obviously not a fully completed song and it's just another example of Paul having to make sure he records every single slither of music that pops into his head in case he forgets it later. And, you know, he might want to reuse it for another project or he might inspire something later down the line. And, you know, there must be so many times where Paul has forgotten a melody or a lyric and it's eaten him up inside. Well, that's not the case with C melody here, though there really isn't a whole lot to discuss here. It is literally just another heartwarming, sweet, melodic, wistful, whimsical Paul McCartney piano segment. Like I say, there really isn't anything to really make it stand out. It's not very iconic, though I will admit the melody, the C melody, if you will, did somewhat remind me of Summer's Day song from McCartney 2. You know, with that kind of the sun coming up, rub your eyes, you know, wake up children, time to go to school kind of vibe. Um, Obviously, all of the stuff recorded aboard the fair carol was indeed during summer, so that kind of makes sense. Maybe that idea kept percolating in Paul's mind, just subconsciously came out of Summer's Day song. Who knows? Though, to be fair, the most noteworthy element of this track is that it starts with a very listen-to-what-the-man-said-esque comedy bit, with Paul messing around in character where he's this kind of old record producer telling some kid that he'll get back to him with the squeaky voice teen replying that he hopes he likes it. Again, it's very reminiscent of Paul's love of all things silly comedy and you know it makes sense that he would throw little in jokes like this on his home recordings even if it's just for his own amusement and one cannot help but be reminded of his love for all things radio in particular the goon show you know this was very goons-esque. Like I said folks in direct contrast to the first two songs on this episode, there's really not a whole lot to write home about here. It's Paul sat at the piano doing his thing. It's a cute little curiosity, but nothing more. Though, we may be seeing it again in a different form very soon. Sooner than you might imagine. Following on from a very short song, we move to a rather lengthy recording indeed. Although... This is admittedly another incredibly generically titled song from these sessions, as this time we have a fairy tale. And then they went back to sleep.
this is certainly one of those highlights of the episode for me, and I was wholly unprepared for it. Whilst I do try to be as objective as possible, I am still such a sucker for unabashed sentiment from Paul, especially when it's not necessarily a love song and, you know, it's dedicated towards his kids. I was so taken back by him and Heather interacting during the Peter Jackson documentary. And being that I'm the only person in the podcasting world who's been covering Hey Grandude and Grandude's Green Submarine, I was more than ready for even more McCartney kid-based content. Basically, the premise of this song slash demo is that Paul is sat with his kids, either sat around him at his feet or sat by his side at the piano, and in his utterly genius way, he's incorporating his musical talents into his children's child's story time slash bedtime story. Apparently, it was recorded on the last night they were aboard the Fair Carol, and I cannot believe how lucky these kids are, or this kid is. I think it, I think it could be one. Like, not only are they on a boat in the Caribbean with their family, but their dad is also playing music for them and doing it at bedtime, and he and he's 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 involving them. He's making them active participants. He clearly is showing that he wants them to be in his life. And you know, Paul always tells these stories about how his kids are bored or embarrassed or annoyed by his constant musicality, and. I guess they just truly don't know how good they have it here. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, could you imagine being there? I'm nearly 30 years old now, and I would gladly sit cross-legged and let this man sing me a bedtime story. Back to the song itself. I've done the maths, and based on the dates of birth uh, and the youthful-sounding child's voice in this song, I doubt it's Heather and Mary and James is likely still in his mummy's tummy. So, I'm guessing the main participant in this is future fashion maestro Stella McCartney. Though, there is still a possibility that the other two sisters are involved as well. Because, you know, who doesn't like singing with your little sister? It's cute. And, just like Heather in episode 3 of The Beatles Get Back, Stella absolutely steals the show here. She's just the most adorable little kid and it's clear she's having a blast goofing around with her silly old dad. I've always had a soft spot for Paul in his loving father mode and to see him or hear him here just showering Stella with love, affection and attention through his music is just overwhelming to me. Like, it did bring a tear to my eye. I'm not ashamed to admit that. There are two parts to this song. You have the verse where Paul is kind of just doing his lounge singer act where he's kind of wistfully rolling out the piano lines in that classic Disney bedtime Beatles goodnight kind of way. And then you have the second part of the song where he's hammering on the keys in that very kooky, very simplistically charming chorus where he sings, or as I think he says, Do you remember what you and I said? Of course, it is a guess as most of these bootleg tracks do not have an official lyric sheet available online. The twinkly Disney parts probably only make up about 20% of the song, and they are mostly expositional you know, in terms of telling the story, though it really is hard to get a grasp on what that story is because of the recording, the lack of lyrics, and also the fact that 
it's just all being ad-libbed by Paul, so it's hardly going to be a proper three-act structure, but that means it's no less impressive. Then you have the rest of the song with that rumpy-pumpy piano bit, and it's clear that that's the part the kids enjoy the most, both in terms of the melody and the fact that they get to be involved in that call-and-response vocal, and it's likely the reason why it makes up the majority of the song. You know, Paul is always the consummate showman, and he's definitely noticing which part of the songs that the kids are responding to, and therefore that's what he's going to focus on. So, yeah, at the end of this little song review, I've got to say... Uh, this is another idea that I really do wish Paul would return to because I think it is just it's the most charming thing ever isn't it like if we could get Grandude doing a song like this maybe even in character to his little chillers that would just make me so happy I mean we always make fun of Paul's kid based efforts but one cannot deny that he's straight up wholeheartedly excellent and endearing when it comes to kids and his interactions with them and the work he creates for them. You know, it might not be the coolest thing ever, but it's still incredible work, and I love this song. Pressing forth, and we have one of my favourite types of cold cuts, and that is a full version of a previously shortened or truncated track that we're already familiar with. Get ready, folks. This is the full, uncut, version of Backwards Traveller. This was simply the extended full studio version of Backwards Traveller is a little dishonest of me. So yeah, that was the extended song as a demo. But I think it still carries across the point of what it would or could have sounded like had it been followed through. As I mentioned earlier, there are many demos of the recordings from this period that would end up on the final album, but this is the only one that's markedly different, and that's why we're talking about it today. So, Backwards Traveller, the one that we know and love from London Town, is but a fragmentary song. And it's clear from this demo that the reason we only got the one we got on that album is because Paul and the band never managed to make the song work past the snippet we got. Yes, there are extra lyrics in this version which do point to a possible second lost verse, but outside of that, it is just the same groove over and over again. And the song really doesn't develop much past that point. We do get some semblance of a middle eighth or a bridge where something different could happen, but no. All we get is the same, I am the backwards traveller, shtick, again and again. And you are sat there just screaming for something a little different, or a solo, or a counter melody, anything, but we don't. Though, it is clear that Paul was enamoured with this track, or at least 
that minute long section and he didn't know what to do with it but was certainly wanting to include it in some form very much like something from say the Abbey Road medley so rather than flogging a dead horse and potentially ruining the very thing that makes this song so good aka that short 60 seconds of gold he clearly decided to ditch the extra weight and work with what he had we don't have any evidence for there being an extended version of Cufflink, so we don't know if their somewhat merger was planned out in advance at all, but it really is one of those situations where I really do feel like things worked out for the better. Now, am I saying that I don't enjoy having more than double the amount of Backwards Traveller than I had before? No, not at all. Just that I recognised that Paul wasn't satisfied with it, and that he knew how critical we would have been as fans if it was left as is, and clearly he just couldn't figure out how better to fill the time. Still, this song is oddly quite highly produced for what it is, obviously not as much as the finished version, but there are far more many separate tracks playing all at once than I would have expected for a demo of this ilk. It has that wonderfully tinny drum machine sound that McCartney was working with throughout so much of 76, and then even in the last parts we get Joe English's drum part, along with not one but two vocal sections from Paul also, with one of them being his kind of rambling mad Professor McCartney routine in the background. Again, I really do enjoy this, this bonus version of this song, but only because it's me being able to hear the, the song that I already love over and over and over, rather than discovering a brand new angle on the song that I never heard of before. So yeah, Backwards Traveller. Adore the original, adore this one. Being a Paul fan, I don't really believe in the idea of having too much of a good thing, so I was always going to get a kick out of this one. Our next song, taken straight from the cutting room floor, is yet another subsection of Cold Cuts, which is a song written by another member of the band that you know McCartney had no trouble in dropping. This is Find A Way Somehow. One, and two, and three, and four, and... Before I even heard the track and realised that it was a Denny Lane pen tune, I was immediately reminded of the phrase, we'll find a way somehow, which is a line from uh, Domino's, a track from Egypt Station, and then I was reminded of Find My Way from McCartney 3, and I thought it was all going to be connected and I was going to have this great thesis for you all, and yeah, I pressed play and had to throw all that out of the window because it is indeed a Denny Lane song, so folks, I do recommend that you do indeed listen to a song before you start coming up with crazy fan theories about it. 
and that's me saying that. Anyway, on to the song itself, and I am oh so glad that we are getting another Denny tune from these sessions, as it really does point to this period being one of the most fruitful for collaborations between him and Paul. Not only do we have Children Children and Deliver Your Children that made their way onto the album as Denny tunes, but Mr. Lane also got a songwriting credit on Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, as well as Mull of Kintyre, as we discussed earlier. And so for him to get another song that they were toying around with, even if it was just in the development stage, gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling, as it seems like he was finally getting his fair due after Wings Over America. Now, of course, the question here is whether this song should have been worked on further and included on London Town, though since I highly doubt Denny would have gotten three tracks on their album, especially considering how badly the lack of Paul-led numbers was received on Wings at the Speed of Sound, the only question now is whether this is better than Children Children, as Deliver Your Children is arguably Blaine's best track in his entire Wings tenure. I hate to sound reductive, and this comment really doesn't have any bearing on my opinion on the song, but the track is a pretty standard Denny Lane, Rocky Blues kind of song. But don't get me wrong, that's more of a description than an opinion. You know, so much of what Wing sound is, is undoubtedly down to Denny himself. And I love a good old Denny Lane bluesy rocker, but this isn't one of the best of them. This is no time to hide. Rather strangely, unlike so many Denny Lane songs that didn't manage to get past Paul's approval during the Wings period, this song did not go on to later appear on Japanese Tears or the rest of Denny's solo work. So maybe even Denny himself didn't think all that highly of this one either. But I don't think it's bad. It's just a, a bit standard, don't you? Like, I can see why Paul probably would have preferred the duo of children's songs to be featured on this album, as they are far more unique and immediately interesting Denny Lane compositions, especially within his whole back catalogue. Um, you know, acoustic songs were definitely more what Paul was going for in this era, less you know, generic rocky stuff. But still, this totally could have been a forgettable throwaway B-side at least. Still, there was something about this song though, maybe it was the keyboards, that just made it sound like a proper classic retro wings track. You know, would it have been an all-time greatest hit from the band that would have appeared on Wingspan? No. Not really, but you know, it does sound like something that they maybe would have played on their early European tour, for example, or the 73 UK tour. And it would have been nice to have had a complete version of this track maybe appear as one of the, the bonus tracks on the upcoming archive versions of London Town or Back to the Egg rather than, than just what's probably going to be this demo version. You know, if the song was finished off and beefed up a little in the studio, I reckon it's something that they at least could have been proud of for five minutes. And yeah, it is a little on the generic side, but that's kind of what Denny brings to the table a lot of the time. He's the blues guitarist, he's the blues maestro, he's the rocker, he's the guitarist. And he sets out with an objective, and here he achieves it with a true workmanlike spirit. Following on, we have another song where Paul is clearly just having fun on his own with a drumming machine in a very pre-McCartney 2 Mad Professor kind of mode. This is After You've Gone. After you've gone 
series where I'm sat there just wondering why I hadn't heard of it before, as I like to consider myself somewhat well-read in Paul's writings, and the reason, as usual, why I hadn't heard of it before is because Paul didn't write it. After You've Gone is a very popular song indeed that goes all the way back to 1918 and is composed by one Turner Layton, with lyrics written by Henry Creamer. The original was recorded by Marion Harris on the 22nd of July 1918 and became a, a moderate standard, spawning numerous covers, including the theme for the BBC sitcom After You've Gone, performed by Jamie Cullum, of all people. It's the basis for many other jazz songs, as it can easily be improvised over. So, of course, it would have been known by Paul. And you can basically see this recording as being akin to all of the rock and roll standards the Beatles were playing during the Get Back sessions, you know. This is just Paul messing around, kicking back with one of the innumerable little ditties in his back pocket. Yeah, this isn't one of Paul's songs, so there isn't much analysis that would normally be afforded here. But I do want to judge it fairly as a cover. And I would say that it's certainly one of the more interesting interpretations of this music. I've listened to versions by... Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, and even an instrumental-only version by Benny Goodman's band. But honestly, folks, Paul is the only one who tries to do something different with material. The rest all just play it safe. But with our Macca, like, like I say, this is him in McCartney 2 professor mode. He does the entire thing solo, bringing all of his rude studio trickery to bear. You know, we begin with a sparse, if potent, combination of drum machine and this fuzzy, dirty bass, which already sounds unlike any of the previous cover versions, before he then adds drums, acoustic guitar, a second vocal track, and by the end of the recording, the whole thing is this completely different experience, especially from the start, with this cacophonic, layered, intertwined craziness that is oddly hypnotic and alluring in its own way. I know some people will be put off by the sound and the audio quality, but I don't know, there's, there's just a certain je ne sais quoi that draws me in. And I know you're all going to think I'm reaching with this next comment, but the whole thing's quite daring in how unmelodic it is. Like, we all know Paul is the master of melody, and so for him to take a classic standard like this, a melody that is universally loved, and to turn it into something so discordant and dissonant is wonderfully unique and brave and infinitely more intriguing than if it was just him sitting at the piano going, oh, when the red, red rapper comes, ba ba ba, you know what I mean? Does it mean it's a good song or that it has any objective merit? Probably not, but if I'm looking at this with a purely analytical and fake academic hat on, then 
I certainly see some worth to it on a personal level. Yeah, I'm hardly going to be re-listening to it on the reg anytime soon. Like the rest of you, I'm sure. Um, but hey, we've had much worse, am I right? Now folks, it's time for us to move on to the main event of this episode, I say. And it's a song that I'm absolutely gagging to talk about, so we're just going to cut to the David Chase you know, this is a fucking classic that never sadly got to be one. This is Water Spout. Thank you. 
Yes, everyone, we are finally here with what many a Paul McCartney fan, nay, dare I say it, most Paul McCartney fans call their favourite unreleased song from his entire back catalogue canon. This is probably the best example of a song where people cite Paul's unreleased material being better than most artists' officially released material. Yes, it is that good. I am not exaggerating here. This is top-tier McCartney, and it boggles my mind that it is yet to formally be released in any form. Though, it is funny that Waterspout has remained a cold cut, as it's clear that Paul has had a lot of interest in getting it off the ground. You know, we have demos for this song of all lengths, we have instrumental ones, ones with slightly different tempos and lyrics, the version that was originally going to appear on London Town, and even the version Paul worked on in the mid-80s during the Hot Hits and Cold Cut sessions, you know. It really is somewhat of a white whale for him. And I guess that there was just something about it that kept him coming back to work on it, but also kept him from truly committing and releasing it. Because it's hardly like the song is unfinished or anything, and everyone who has heard it loves it. So what gives? Well, let's go back to the origins of this song. Like the majority of this episode, Waterspout is a studio outtake from the quote-unquote Water Wings stint of the London Town Sessions in the Virgin Islands on Paul's yacht, The Fair Carol, during May of 77. It was near this period where the Wings lineup was reduced to the classic threesome Paul, Linda and Denny, so like a lot of the London Town album, it's not totally clear whether drummer Joe English and guitarist Jimmy McCulloch were present during the recording... Actually, you know what? Let's take a quick listen to the first demo of this track and let's try and figure that fact out together right now. Is this three wings members or five wings members? Let's have a look. This early version of the song has none of the harmonies in place, we don't have the brass or orchestral overdubs. Some of the lyrics are slightly different, as is Paul's vocal, perhaps due to the lack of double tracking and stuff. But yeah, right off the bat, I do need to point out that both that demo and the final version you heard at the start 
The drumming track is suspiciously synthetic. Like, okay, this could be some post-production work, but the drum track sounds pretty identical between the two, and we know that when Paul revisited it, he basically just added stuff on top rather than re-recording stuff, and the lack of a natural drum sound in the demo and the final product leads me to believe that Joe English's involvement was minimal at best, though likely not at all. Yeah, he may have been there for the earliest of run-throughs aboard the ship and stuff, but by the end of it, he really isn't. And the fact that there isn't any lead guitar at all reinforces my opinion that this is a Wings trio piece. But if I am wrong, be sure to write into pumpkindipod.gmail.com. Then, in January 1981, we have the first Cold Cut sessions where Lawrence Duba confirms that new vocals were added to Water Spout, which was intended to be released again. Then, in September of 86, Paul worked on the song again with orchestrator Richard Niles, uh, which again was intended to be released. And this is likely where the orchestral overdubs were added, which essentially turns the song into the finished version that we know and love today. Then this is where the story takes a turn for the worst. Well, you could say it took a turn for the best, as you might say. Um, You'll soon see why that wasn't the case, though. So, the two vinyl compilation album, All the Best, as we know, was spearheaded by the release of the single Once Upon a Long Ago, backed with Back on My Feet, and Once Upon a Long Ago itself was featured as the final track on side three of all of the non-US versions of the double album. However, here's a quote from the Godfather himself, Mark Lewison, in Beatles Monthly Book issue 138 from October 87, which addresses the rumour of not one, but two previously unreleased songs being included on the new compilation album. It reads as thus. McCartney's TV-advertised double album of Solo Slash Wing's greatest hits, All the Best, is expected to be out in the UK on the 26th of October, and in the USA with a subtly different track listing on the 28th of October. The two previously unreleased songs on the 21 track collection, hinted at last month, are Once Upon a Long Ago, a 1987 produced song by Phil Ramone, and Water Spout, originally a Wings recording and long destined for a place on cold cuts. The two songs are highly likely to form an A and B side of a new single. Okay, so not only was Water Spout originally going to have been released on a proper canon album, albeit a compilation one, but it was also apparently going to be the B-side for a single. After much sleuthing, I cannot find a specific reason as to why it was omitted at the last minute, but it was ultimately replaced with Sea Moon. Apparently there was even artwork drafted for the album cover to you know to feature Waterspout, but sadly I cannot find that image. It's been scrubbed from the internet. If any of you out there can find it, please email that in. But still, holy shitballs, how awesome would it have been? I mean, to either have this as an album track or as a single. I mean, probably not as awesome to have Waterspout as an A-side and Back on My Feet as a B-side and letting Once Upon a Long Ago drift into the ether. But, you know, you can't have everything. It's just so irksome that we cannot legally access this song outside of bootlegs and it what's even more frustrating is just how close the song came to coming out 
What was that thing that just, you know, took it away? However, I think what makes this lack of release so frustrating is also one of the song's greatest successes. And why it would have worked on all the best so well. Basically, whether it was released as a single in the 70s or as a B-side or compilation bonus track in the 80s, the fact of the matter is, is that this is a song that far more appeals to the hardcore Paul McCartney fan base than it does the wider market. And I know it sounds like I'm about to criticise the track, but that could not be further from the truth. But you do have to take a step back and take a serious look at whether this song would have done very well or not, and I just don't see it. It's a song that feels very much of a particular place and time, and I just can't picture it doing as well as Good Night Tonight or even getting closer. Now, what I will say is that I would have preferred it to be a single over, say, the title track of London Town, which was the third one from that album and flopped tremendously. And, yeah, in that case, I could have seen it doing better. But especially the later you go into the 80s, the more anachronistic it would feel and it would just be too little too late. However, this brings me back to my point that this is a perfect song for the hardcore fans and it would have been a great addition to the compilation album. But still, now we can finally get into why this song is specifically awesome as it is. One of the first things people tend to notice when they're listening to London Town is how none of it sounds like it was recorded at sea in the Caribbean. Well, Waterspout is the exception to this rule, with its catchy Caribbean rhythm being so much of what makes that backing track just so damn catchy. You also have those delightful keyboard parts also, which just adds to that laid-back, carefree air to the whole thing. You know, just as soon as it, as it starts with that... There's just a big, goofy sense of joy everywhere. Though, this really is a song that lives and dies by its vocals, as it's the vocal melody of this song that's going to stick in your mind more than any other element. I really haven't spoken too much about Paul's vocals on this episode so far, actually, but I must say, his performance on this song is just so endearing. Again, he, he sounds just so bloody wholesome and upbeat, and that sunny disposition just translates to the listener effortlessly. Again, backing vocals with Denny and Linda here are as strong as ever, particularly during the... Uh, the it's only love bridge. And I just have so much fun when they're all hitting that band on the run threesome height, you know. Oh, also, there's a lot of affection in my heart for Denny's little counter vocals towards the end of the song, too. Richard Niles' contributions are also bloody fantastic. Like, it, it's so peak silly McCartney like the song's already pretty silly as it is anyway but that 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 bright whimsical brass backing again just adds a just so much joy joy to the song it you know it's very obladi obladar-esque in that kind of way but actually going back to the vocals what are they singing about let's move on to the lyrics and firstly we, we must ask what exactly a water spout is well, in simple terms, it's basically a water tornado on, on the sea, which makes sense considering the sessions. And rather than turning it into a song about the dangers of such a meteorological phenomena, instead, in true McCartney fashion, he turns it into a love song. The main hook, love comes in, love goes out in the middle of a water spout, makes little nautical sense, but 
it just conveys that 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 heartfelt mood and tone of the song just perfectly. This is a silly love song, but with an emphasis on the silly rather than the love, with a cute, if trite, little narrative about Daddy and his little daughter Dancer and her own efforts to make off with her lover Woody the Bad Bandit. It's a classic tale, really. You know, Dad doesn't like daughter's new BF, and it very much echoes something like Backseat of My Car with its defiant love-conquers-all motif, which is particularly present during the previously mentioned Only Love segment. And yes, some of it's a little clunky in terms of its syllables in some places, but that's all part of the charm for me as far as I'm concerned. Though it is my prevailing theory that it's the lyrics to this that is the main reason why Paul hasn't released this. Maybe he just thinks people won't take this one seriously enough, but the reason I like it is because it's not serious whatsoever. Though, there is an alternative analysis for the lyrics to this song, and it's not just something that I've cooked up in my own neurodivergent fever dream either. Um, I've seen this interpretation of these lyrics elsewhere on the interwebs as well. Get ready, folks. (laughs) Basically, you could also see the lyrics of this song as having an overtly sexual tone, and I ain't talking about, you know, subtext or undertones. This is straight-up overtone and actual text. I might need to spell it out for you, but some of you may notice that the water spout could be an allusion to the female sex organ. The boyfriend is literally called Woody. Love comes in, love goes out, love goes in, love goes out. At the bottom of a water spout. Go on, folks, I know you're starting to catch my drift here. The song is full of double entendres, you know, blowing it, things hanging out, people knocking each other about, maybe even coming to blows. And like an optical illusion, once you see it one way, it's incredibly hard to see it another way. And yet, it doesn't make 100% logical sense in terms of the narrative of the song, but maybe Paul wouldn't be able to obfuscate these lyrics if it did make 100% narrative sense both in one interpretation and another. And why can't Paul's song about sex be as clunky and all over the place as some of his other actual topics that he means to do and show up front. It's an interesting theory anyway, and certainly one that I don't 100% ascribe to, but um, I've, I've certainly given it a lot of thought, and it's a distinct possibility that, yeah, that could be what the song's really about. And, you know, we've got famous groupies and girls' school from this era, so Paul's clearly a bit of a randy man during this time, so you never know, could be. Anyway, regardless of what the song is about, it is still one of, if not the greatest, cold cut we've ever encountered in this entire side series. At least as far as I'm concerned. I've been on the Steve Hoffman forums and found that there aren't too many fans that aren't that impressed with this number, but, you know, there are a couple. Um, Fortunately, this isn't their podcast, and so I'm totally safe in calling them completely wrong. This is one of Paul's best songs ever, released or otherwise. And if you haven't given it a full listen, stop the podcast, go listen to it a few times. You won't be disappointed. It is that good. There are very few songs in Paul's canon that can make me smile as much as this one. You know, it's 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 just unabashedly fun and silly and heartwarming. I mean, what more do you want from a McCartney song than that? Love goes in, love goes out. You can't explain that.
Up next, we have a song that typifies these cold cut sessions in that this is a Paul McCartney experiment, but not necessarily one that was a success in everyone's eyes. And that's why it's never seen the light of day. This is Boil Crisis. Bricks of Lighter!
So, after the most beloved of all Paul McCartney cold cuts, we now come to what is widely considered to be one of the worst. And while I'm going to be somewhat derisive of this song for the remainder of this review, please know that just like girls' school, I have a strong affection for it deep down. And I have been listening to it more or less non-stop during the writing of this episode. Again, just because your love for a song isn't pure and sincere doesn't mean it is any less passionate. Now, the main fact I know about this song is that it was highly influenced by Paul's daughter Heather, who liked British punk rock, particularly the Sex Pistols, and this was basically Paul's attempt to make a punk rock style song, either for her amusement or his own. It was recorded in the summer of 77 during the Waterwings recordings, and as far as I'm, I'm aware, featured the entire Wings five-man lineup at the time. Then, the fact I thought I knew, but can't find any source for, is that once Paul had written and recorded it, he played it for Heather, and she was so apparently embarrassed by it that that's why Paul never released it. However, something I never knew is that well, actually, I wish I'd have mentioned this in the Tug of War episode, but apparently, according to BeatlesBible.com, this was one of the songs that Paul demoed to George Martin during the Tug of War sessions. Now, of course, it never made it onto that album, but could you imagine if Boyle Crisis was on an album with, you know, Wanderlust and Take It Away? It, it, the incongruity there, for me, is just too tempting to ignore you know um let's just have a quick listen to the Boyle crisis tug of war demo got his head off rip the blighter As you can tell with this more modern version, probably with a full band, we sadly don't have Paul's lead guitar uh, scat vocalizations, and instead they're replaced by an actual guitar. But it's still very interesting to see just how close to the original demo he was trying to get with this one. He, he really was trying to replicate that sound, which is especially interesting considering just how much time had elapsed between those two sessions and how much music in general had changed. Of course, as per this series, the song has remained unreleased, but on Ubu Jubu, Paul's DJ radio show, he did indeed air this Tug of War demo during its second episode. So again, another song a bit low water spout that I know he has some affection for. Okay, on to the song itself, and we have to address whether this is a good punk song or not. And yeah. I don't think I have to make much of an argument here to point out that this is hardly going to be making the Ramones or The Clash or even a fake band like Heather's favourites, The Sex Pistol, tremble in their boots. There is a part of me that wonders whether Paul was being entirely serious with this song and whether he was veering into 
a direct parody of a genre that he didn't really have much respect for in the first place. But the fact that he brought the song back for the Tug of War sessions means he couldn't have hated it. But yeah, without being too mean or anything, this song comes across far more as a man from a previous generation trying to keep up with the kids and failing to fully quote-unquote get it. Now, in Paul's defence, he has successfully done this a number of times, be it alone or with collaboration, you know, doing modern stuff. But the thing about punk is that, you know, you need that anti-establishment, working-class political anger, and there just really isn't enough of that to give this any air of punk. <laughs> you know, what has Paul McCartney, one of the richest, most successful men in the world, have to be punking about? I don't know. I mean, half of his songs where he's trying to be angry or even be claiming to have had enough song from the same album, you know, he's barely convincing. And so the mood here, with that heavy is less convincing. Particularly when like Paul's choosing to do a, a faux British posh vocal. Yeah, the the instrumental aims for punk, but again, I think it's indicative of Paul assuming that punk means you have to intentionally play your instruments badly or something, or to intentionally make it sound bad. But again, going back to the Clash or the Ramones, that isn't the case. And it's strange because, you know, Paul did Helter Skelter a decade prior, and that has so much more melody and power and vocal prowess on it, and it's all lost here. Though, I do like how in both versions, some of it's like almost turned into a spoken word piece, but again, with with the voice, you know, prick the blighter, it's all a little too off the mark. Moving on to the lyrics though now, and something else I didn't know about this song was that Paul had originally based the song on the title of a newspaper article he read called Oil Crisis, and subsequently based the narrative of the lyrics from it. Now, considering how actively green Paul was, I'm surprised he didn't write something about a literal oil crisis, especially since he was writing other news-based songs around this time, such as The Pound is Sinking. But yeah, once I actually started listening to the song properly, I just had to find the lyrics online. And fortunately, there was a Japanese website that was the only one that had a close approximation as to what they were. I had to make a few adjustments of my own. But yeah, they were finally there, and I got to realise what the track was about. So, in my own head, a song like Boil Crisis would be about the idea of boiling water and rising temperature and stress and anger. You know, it's, it's a it's a punk song, so I thought that's what it was going to. But I could not be farther from the truth there. You know, we open, you know, the song with Prick the Blighter, which I thought was like a, a, a sweary insult, a.k.a. a prick. And then you got another lyric, which is cut his head off. And I was like, oh, wow, this kind of violence is in this song again. Really interesting. Still, completely wrong. It's all double entendre. Again, Paul is having his way with us with words. Rather delightfully, Boyle Crisis is actually concerned about a very different kind of oil, and that's the sebaceous kind of oil that oozes out of one's pores. Yes, this tale is about a look at people with skin afflictions. You have Sid who seems to live in an old world with pyramids and is unable to perform the ancient dance because of a pimple on his neck. 
Then you have the wife of Mr. Montague, who is somehow involved in the world of fashion, but she has a blackhead on her chin. And then you have another unnamed hero who is about to go on a quest, but he has a boil on his nose. Boil crisis, oil crisis, great pun, Paul. And, yeah, you could just look at this as a silly little McCartney idea slash rhyming scheme that got out of control in his typical way. But I genuinely think there's a slightly deeper symbolism here and that the song is about people of all types who are held back from doing great things or things they want to do by little and insignificant factors, such as a spot on their face. As always, this might be classic me thinking about it a little too much, but there is certainly a theme running through all three separate verses of this song, and the fact that it is ordered and structured in that kind of classic McCartney three-act composition leads me to believe that there is more to meet the ear with this one. Perhaps if there was a, an official full uh, lyric sheet that might help, and maybe if Paul had spoken about it in his lyrics book, we would have been able to get to the bottom of it, but at the moment it is just purely speculation. Now, if the Heather being embarrassed by this song theory holds any water, then it would not surprise me that a large part of her embarrassment might be directly tied to the fact that she would have been a teenager herself at that time, in all likelihood a spotty one, and the fact that not only did her father make a punk song to kind of mock her favourite band, but he also wrote a song about something she may be very incredibly self-conscious about, only would have made her resent the song even further. Though you could relate this back around to the idea that maybe Paul doesn't want her to feel held back by such skin conditions and he wants her to be confident in spite of all of that, which could be a lovely sentiment, if true. Again, all speculation, there is no basis in hard evidence for this, but it doesn't half make a little bit of sense. So yeah, Boyle Crisis, folks, a song that by no means is a classic or would even under any circumstances have made its way onto London Town or Tug of War for that matter. But in terms of curiosities, this is easily one of my favourites. It's got a great backstory to it. It's got an even better mystery surrounding it. I mean, the fact that Paul revisited it with George Martin <laughs> is is just so fascinating to me. And, you know, I, that, that, that there is no surprise that George Martin rejected this one and would have made Paul work on some other tracks during those sessions. But <laughs> could you imagine if this had ended up on Pipes of Peace or something like that? Very strange indeed. Next on the list, we have the last of the songs from 77 and another track with allusions to the Caribbean. This is Jamaican Hillite. Thank you. 
Now, there could be a very long time between when I start writing an episode and when I return to finish it off. And very strangely, in my original notes for this song, I described it as being basically, quote, an early version of Goodnight Tonight, which absolutely baffles me. Like, what was I smoking at the time? Drugs? But yeah, onto the song itself. Like so many of the tracks we have discussed today, this is just another of a thousand little melodies that is inside of Paul's head just waiting to be let out and put to tape. It really is unbelievable just how bursting at the seams Paul was during this period, because the amount of fresh melodies coming out of him here, you know, it's, it's endless, it really is. The main thrust of this song is a truly charming synthesizer slash Moog melody, with a real non-synthesised drum beat behind it. It's part of those distinctly watery, nautical, Caribbean-esque theme tracks that were, for some reason, like Waterspout, redacted from the final London Town album. Again, though, as with a lot of the shorter tracks on today's episode, I really could imagine this as being a little link track on that album, or maybe be being tapped onto the end of Morse Moose and the Grey Goose or something. You know, or even being incorporated into the Rupert the Bear project. But more on that on a future episode. Now, despite the lack of a drum machine and the Caribbean theme of the title, this was not actually composed during the Waterwing sessions, and Joe English was not present at all. Instead, this was part of the spirit of Ranashan studio recordings after they returned, and so this is likely Paul on drums. Again, though, being only about a minute or so long, there really isn't much more to go into. It's a, another little fun oddity that, for what it is, is something that I enjoyed quite a bit. The melody is rather cute in itself, but it isn't really developed beyond anything like that. Though, going back to the title, what is a Hillite? Well, a Hillite is an alternative or archaic version of the word highlight. As in, this melody is reminiscent or about the highlight of their trip to the Virgin Islands. I mean, it's hardly the highlight of these cold cuts, but it's interesting to think that this melody is meant to symbolise and pay tribute to that whole period of time, rather than being anything that would appear on the final album. Like, maybe this is something that Paul just needs to get out of his system to move past those sessions. Still, for what it's worth, that whole concept makes sense, as that melody is an incredibly cheerful one and does put a very sentimental McCartney grin on my face whenever I hear it. Moving on to 1988 now, for a couple of songs at least, with all of these tracks being recorded at his home studio, aka Rude Studios. With this track, we have another little snippet of a tune that is somehow bundled in with another one. This is... I keep on believing slash love awake. I can write another song as long as you keep leaving. Day by day my nights are long. Some men fight for lovers' rights 
Some men fight for freedom Snow falls in the winter version of Love Awake that is tacked on to the end of this demo is the same one that we covered in the last episode, so I'll keep things brief and just discuss the I Keep On Believing segment. I doubt the two songs are interconnected in any meaningful way, like it wasn't meant to be the original Winter Rose or anything like that. I just suspect it may just be how the original demo tapes were sequenced, because there's also quite a hard cut as well. Again, with this episode we have another song that is relatively short, okay, very short, being at just about a minute or so, and again, it just highlights how much of a ditty or lick phase Paul was in at this time. He's still coming up with loads of lengthy tunes, but it seems that he's also conjuring a whole host of minute-long snippets, or at least recording them more than often. He probably does this all the time, but this is a moment of time where he's bundling them in with the demos more often than not. With... I keep on believing, though, I am rather saddened that it didn't develop into anything more substantial, as it feels pure McCartney in every sense. And I don't mean that in a patronising or put-down way either. It has that innate, macker, acoustic feel whereby, if he was able to crack the code, it would potentially become a low-key classic. You know, maybe this could have replaced I'm Carrying on the album. The vocal melody genuinely feels like it could have come from any point in his career, again, in a good way. Though, to be fair, there really isn't much of an instrumental melody going on here, and perhaps that's why it never stuck in Paul's head like the others in his back catalogue did. Lyrically, I can see this song being suitably expanded. I mean, the idea that Paul cannot write another song because someone keeps leaving him is such a evocative image and idea, because we all know that he lives and breathes songwriting and for someone to affect him like that certainly would have resonated with listeners. Though it only would work as a Paul song, this couldn't be one that he would give away. Also, the final line of the song, Some men fight for lovers, some men fight for freedom, would have fit quite nicely in terms of the theming of Tug of War, especially since how many songs for that album were being written at this time. Um, Also, that's the line where it's quite clear that um, there's a cut, and I think maybe Love Awake was actually recorded over the end of this song, so there might be more uh, that we don't know. Anyway, again, not too much to analyse here, as there literally isn't much to analyse. So all I can say is, again, this one's enjoyable for what it is, and clearly Paul was having fun with it to some degree, as again, it appeared on Ubu Jubu, 19th of August, 1995, episode 14. You can hear this song. So it's clear that, you know, this period 
is not like a blank spot in Paul's mind. He does remember a lot of these songs, just he never released them. On to another song clearly inspired by Paul's time in the Caribbean and a song that easily could have beaten out B-side to the C-side had it have been recorded in time. This is Reggae Moon. left an indelible impression on him, as yet again we have another instrumental that appears to be harkening back to that time. Maybe the departure of Jimmy and Joe soured that experience, and that's why the album became far more UK and London-centric, with this flavour not getting any release at all. As far as I'm concerned, this song is the ancestor to the McCartney 2 instrumentals. Both feature Paul on all the instruments and producing them alone, both have little catchy melodies that take great advantage of a variety of synths and keyboards and I could see this easily slipping between something like Front Parlour and Frozen Japanese quite nicely actually, you know, they are related in that way and it would not have shocked me for Paul to have returned to this one or it to be a bonus track on McCartney 2. Though, oddly enough, for such a synthetic song, Paul still opted to use a real drum kit for the backing track rather than a drum machine, though this might literally be because he doesn't have a drum machine at home. Though, from McCartney 1, we know he does have an actual drum kit at his property. Now, what makes this track so enjoyable isn't just because of a particular song style coming through the chronology a little earlier than I expected, but because it... it just creates such a tangible feeling and mood and atmosphere. I mean, there's less of a hook-like melody with this one, but the instrumentation on display is simply awesome. We have Paul going into a full amphetamine mode with this song, with so many out-of-control, down-the-rabbit-hole-style keyboard lines that are just so fast and flourished. Like, normally, Paul is taping stuff down because there's a lick that he knows he's going to work on with something later down the line. But here, you know, it's just more like a mood piece where he's just trying to workshop this feeling and trying to nail a particular sound rather than completing a finished three-act structure song. It's really interesting. And... It's definitely something I feel that stuck in the back of his mind and was brought back for future projects. Okay, folks, I'm generally running out of ways to talk about these short little excerpts in detail, so what I will say is that it's a pretty cool vibe. I'm glad that it allowed Paul to experiment with sounds that would feature on my top three favourite Solar McCartney albums. 
But again, outside of that, very little to report on. And finally, everyone, the last song we're going to talk about here today is, as far as I'm aware, the only Paul McCartney song whose title is an abbreviation. This is SMA. Pleasant surprise, actually, as I'd not heard of this one at all until the day I recorded this episode. But hey, it's short and sweet, and so I, I couldn't wait until the next of these episodes before I spoke about it. In an episode of Ubujubu, Paul explains this song himself rather perfectly, actually. Essentially, this is another song he recorded at his home studios, the aforementioned Rude Studios, and one of the ways he has fun with his kids at this point was to involve his kids directly in recordings, you know, as a collaborative effort. So, you know, earlier we had Fairy Tale, where Paul was including the kids more in the sense that they were an active participatory audience, but here he and Heather are directly collaborating on a song instead. As you may have guessed, yes, of course, I am predisposed to somewhat adore this song based on the premise alone, regardless of the outcome. And again, I am, I have no doubt that Heather just has no idea how lucky she is to participate in such a recording, as she likely just thought that this was silly old dad being silly old dad, especially considering that this is now Paul's second attempt at a punk-style song. The idea for the track, along with the title, is a very simple one. Heather is simply reading the ingredients from a tub of powdered baby milk slash formula. What's the brand? SMA, of course. James McCartney had just been born and so there would have been plenty of SMA lying around the house. Paul and Lennon regularly use TV and newspapers, and so why not the packaging of some baby formula? I think the idea is pretty cool, and it fits with that anecdote where Dustin Hoffman asked Paul if he could write a song about anything. Well, here... He is proving that not only can he write a song about anything, but he can make lyrics out of any existing words in any existing order, whether they rhyme, uh, have a certain metre, stanzas or not. Of course, the main highlight of this track is the vocals. I mean, it's hard not to hear Heather's mother in this recording, especially when she hits those high notes. And I will say that in all honesty, it's not that bad at all. It also opens up another world of what-ifs, as we know that Paul would go on to include his son James on Flaming Pie, so who knows, maybe we could have gotten Heather on Flowers in the Dirt had she been up for it, who knows. The music, as I mentioned, is undoubtedly another punk-style effort from Paul, which was more likely a device to ensure Heather's involvement rather than an existing interest in the genre, but I've got to admit, I do dig that brief, heavy thump of the drum track and that dirge-like bass part that he adds underneath. There's there's definitely a cool undercurrent there. Though, there is a part of me that wonders whether this is the punk song from this era that Heather never wanted Paul to release. But again, it did end up on Ubu Jubu. 
And you know what, folks? I wanted to end this episode on a song that I really do dig, one that really touches my heart, because how cool is this? Paul just recording a song with his kids in their home studio. I mean, could you think of anything more heartwarming? I certainly can't. Let's just say, folks, that S-A-M certainly does love S-M-A. And there we are, folks. We are at the end of another episode of Paul or Nothing. This has been part five of our look into cold cuts and hot hits, or hot hits and cold cuts, depending on your preferential pronunciation of that concept. But yeah, I really hope you enjoyed this one. We've had a look at some of the weirder tracks from this era, a couple of highlights as well, a couple of big ones, a couple of heavy hitters that have been a joy to research and talk about and listen to non-stop in the preparation for this episode. Another solo episode, actually. We've done quite a few, actually. I do need to get a guest on soon so we can have a little more classic Paul or Nothing banter. But yeah, um, next time we'll be covering 78 into 79. There are lots of fantastic songs from this era as well, including, but not limited to, Goodnight Tonight, Same Time Next Year, Did We Meet Somewhere Before... Cage, Yeah, we've got a lot of big shit to talk about the next time, whenever we get around to it. Next episode, I imagine uh, I'll probably be doing a listen with Sam. I'll be taking it easy. We'll have some fun listening to the album from this episode. London Town. Looking forward to that. I know you are too. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Paul and Nothing. I have been your host, Sam Wiles. Keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to The Beatles. Peace and love, peace and love, Harry, Harry, Krishna, no more autographs, play yourself, Kenny.